Let us pause in life's pleasures and count its many tears while we all sorrow with the poor. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. Tis the song, the sigh of the weary. Hard times, hard times come again no more. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard times come again no more. Welcome tonight to Mace Way. Glad you're here. Let's do this one more time together if you're just learning this song. It's an old Stephen Foster folk tune. and We'll do it later with all the verses, but just join us on the first one in the chorus. Let us pause in life's pleasures and count its many tears while we also sorrow with the poor. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. Tis the song, the sigh of the weary. Hard times, hard times come again no more. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard times come again no more. Oh, hard times come again no more. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Chelsea. I am the administrative coordinator here at Amaze Way. If it's your first time with us, we want to extend a special welcome to you. Amaze Way is a missional Christian community that's focused on serving Durham and the world, and uh, we welcome you here tonight. We have lots going on that happen throughout the week. Um, one of them is sort of our theological pub group that happens on Thursday night, and I think, is Dan not in the room? Hi. Yeah, if you want any more information, you can find his email on the back of the sheet, or you can talk to Dan afterwards. And we also have several home groups that meet throughout the week, and I don't, or Elizabeth's right back there. <laughs> She's your contact person if you want any information about that. Um, please visit our website. We have lots of detailed information about home groups and other things, and for right now, I wanted to call up Dave Thiessen. I know that we have a quick financial update. Hey, everybody. So, as we like to do throughout the year, you just give brief financial update. I know this is your favorite time of the service, um, so I'll try to be quick. Um, just first off, thank you to everybody who has contributed. It's, it's amazing what we, as a kind of a small community, uh, are doing. 
Um, and, and part of that is, is the contribution that we get from everybody. So just huge thanks before I even kind of get to the numbers and whatnot. Um, but through the end of June, we have brought in $40,982 in contributions, um, which is awesome. Uh, when you compare it to last year, uh, we are right on track. Uh, last year we had brought in $41,296, so just a couple hundred dollars difference there. Um, so that's good. As you remember, we set the budget as what it was last year, so to be on that kind of same path is nice. Um, now, as a reminder, we did uh, set the budget for 109000 so we got a little bit more way to go. As always, you know, the last few months are big for us, um, but just wanted to give you guys, a, you know, an update, know where we stand. As always, if you uh, want to contribute, we have the silver basket in the foyer there, um, also through PayPal online on our website, and uh, you can also mail in uh, checks if you want to do it that way. So uh, just thanks again to everybody. Just wanted to keep you all abreast of where we stand. Great, and on that note as well, um, we sit on a reminder this week in the weekly, we are um, going to be contributing towards Reality Ministries Mustard Seed Grant, and I have received several checks for that. Um, you can also do a donation toward their camp, so just a reminder, if you want any of the money that gets in that bowl, if you want it to go to Reality Ministries, make sure you write in the memo exactly where you want it to go. Well, again, welcome. We're so glad to have you tonight as we dive into Lamentation. Thanks a lot, Chels. Wanted to uh, do that uh, opening with the fiddle and with uh, a cappella because I wanted to give you a sense of how um, in uh, our history, people you know, didn't have a lot of the technology that we have, and so a lot of music was just simply sitting around, people sharing with whatever instrument uh, they had. And uh, a song like Hard Times was a pre-Civil War song by a few years and uh, so I um, wanted to just give you a sense that lament has a long history, that lament has also got different styles and that there are different ways that people have used lament to um, not just be mourners, but to be people that were reminded uh, in, as communities of things that they felt like were things they wanted to remember because they gave meaning to their lives. And some of that meaning was grief, not just things that went well. And uh, so this next song is interesting, I think, because it comes from uh, uh, pre-World uh, War II, but Woody Guthrie spent some time during the Depression traveling, riding railroads, working uh, with people that were migrant workers, and he gathered their music. And um, so this is one of the songs that he gathered, and um, he uh, put it to music. Uh, there's some recordings around 1944, end of that, or 1945. So right at the end of World War II. And it's interesting because probably our most commercial time as a country came right out of World War II as people went back to work as the assembly lines moved from building bombers and tanks to move, building cars and washing machines and all the things that we have in our house. So if you picture that time and then imagine these words and this great expanse of a land that had not been invaded. People thought Japan was going to invade during World War II, and we weren't invaded. And so we've got this great land, and then we've got this song that's got both this praise for the land that we all live in together, and also some lament at how even then people uh, were living. So sing this with us. Once I rode that Ribbon of highway saw above me that in the sky saw below me 
that golden valley And how this land was made for you and me I roamed and rambled Followed my footsteps The sparkling sands of Your diamond deserts And all around me He cried, this land was made for you and me. The sun came shining as I went strolling. The wheat fields waving and the dust clouds roaming. Her bells were ringing as the fog was lifting. Singing this land was made. This land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream water, this land was made for you and me, so I went saw the sign there and on the sign it said there's no trespassing but on the other side didn't say nothing that side was made for you and me on Sunday morning in the shadow of the steeple by the relief office I saw the people And they were hungry And they were wondering If this land was made for you and me This land is your land This land is my land From California New York Island, Redwood Forest, to the Gulf Stream water, this land was made for you and me, this land is your land, this land is your land, from California, New York Island. This land was made for you and me. Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody. I'm Tim. Wait, I watched a... Uh...
documentary this week. I think it was an HBO documentary called Lost on Long Island. And it was a portrait of largely America post-2008 economic collapse. And I, I knew we were going to do that song. And I thought, boy, that, that's actually an ideal soundtrack for what they did. And it's one that, uh, one of the things I appreciate about that is it kind of mixes lament with glory in a powerful way. So good choice uh, tonight. Hey, um, most of you guys know this. Um, this is our time of the year. It's really a, um, a unique time in the life of Emmaus Way. We're a community that has certainly uh, been embedded in life here around Duke and UNC, as well as just life in the triangle, which has lots of transitions. So kind of, I always go on Sunday nights like with great anticipation, because I think in terms of Julys and August and things like that, we've met people who have been coming into our community. So if you're, if you're new, this may fit in your cat, in this, that category, who become lifetime friends for us. Uh, and it's always exciting to remember the first time someone kind of came as a part of our very community style of ministry. Uh, we also say our farewells this time of year as people uh, get into new programs, move on, jobs, all those things. And tonight we have three folks that we're saying farewell. Uh, Vanessa Brown. Vanessa, why don't you come on up and join me here on the stool. And also uh, Dave and Hannah Klein. And it was Dave's, I think it was grandfather, is that right? died this past week and so they ended up with a, a one o'clock um, memorial today and so I think they're rushing back but we're just going to anticipate that they're not going to make it before 6.30 hits. But if they do, we will do this again because we love them. Uh, but I think Hannah sent out an email um, to invite anyone who wants to hang out uh, dinner tonight at Olivia's, which is one block walking distance. And even if this is your first time, it's a great time to, to meet folks in our community. So a bunch of us will be heading down there after, after the, the gathering this evening. So uh, that's for Dave and Hannah, who we are uh, going to deeply miss as well. They are heading to Houston. Houston. Dave is starting a PhD at Rice University, and uh, they uh, have one, one, certainly one prayer request that they've kind of mentioned this week uh, to pass on to our community is that, you know, and you guys, m many of you guys know the routine. When you're stepping into a program, the person that's coming in the program, they kind of know who they're going to be around. They've got some fixed community. And if you are friend, partner, spouse of person doing that, that's a little more challenging. And so I know Hannah would love to be able to get connected vocationally, friendship-wise. And some of you guys are their best friends, and you're hard people to replace, but perhaps you could uh, pray that that would indeed happen. But Vanessa, we are switching to you now. Why don't you give us, I'm going to give you the mic, why don't you tell us um, what you're doing next and uh, ways that this community can kind of come around you, uh, pray for you as you're making the transition. Yeah, um, I'm starting a PhD in clinical psychology at Virginia Tech, so I'm moving up there um, to start in the fall. And I remember like two months after I came here, I had this urge to like email you and tell you I wanted to tell a story up here. And sitting up here again gave me a really bad flashback to that. <laughs> um, you told a great story. I hope so. I don't really remember any of it. But um, just that like I really tried to form a community here. And you guys have been so receptive and so welcoming. And I really feel blessed by that. Um, and it's really hard to, to leave this. And so I guess a big prayer for me would just be to find that community and find that support once I move up to Roanoke. Um, also, if you guys want to come up and visit, um, I'll have a bedroom. Apparently, I'm right off the Appalachian Trail, um, so that's definitely. But um, yeah, community and just um, kind of keeping my priorities in mind, because I know grad school can kind of consume your life, and remembering that's not, you know, my ultimate purpose, and that's not, you know, all that I'm doing. So that would be that would be good to keep in mind. Absolutely. 
I have a portrait of Vanessa. Last week I came into church and, uh, you know, the setup is going on. And, and you know, the setup is an important and great thing around here. And I saw Vanessa doing the setup. And I was like, Vanessa, you're like being the setup person to your last week here. And she said, well, I got the, the mail for the rotation. And I knew I obviously wasn't available in August and September and October. So, uh, so I just took my, my weeks, my last couple weeks. And that is a perfect description of you. You came into this community as somebody who wanted to love, be loved, and to serve. And you have done that in so many amazing ways. So uh, I'm still going to send some pleading emails to, to say, don't go all week long. But truly, we we are excited about this. We know this is what you've wanted to do. And I've heard rumor, at least from Chelsea and a few others, that, uh, that Virginia Tech is a good place to be. And I've actually been there a few times. So I don't know what that stupid bird thing they have going on there. But, but other than that, <laughs> next, Will's going to do the dialogue next week and explain the hokey to all of us. Uh, though I, Actually, I think you can hear the Rodenheiser house screaming on football Saturdays around Durham. It's, it's possible. But we love you so much. And we are are going to go with you as a community. We hope that you will be able to drop back in and hopefully, I, one of the things that's been great about the friendships that we've been able to make around here is um, we were doing a kind of a guy's toast of Dave the other night and you just don't get the sense that these are friendships that are going away just because distance is changing our lives. So uh, I want to pray for you and, uh, and also please don't be shy to ask for any more help that you might need to, to get out of town. So, and I think you have your dad visiting tonight yeah, yeah, as well. That's my dad, We're glad I'm, to have. I'm not moving by myself. So. <laughs> and that's that's a good dad thing to do. I mean, you know, daughter moving, you got to be there. So, thank you for doing that as well. So, let's pray for Vanessa and Dave and Hannah. God, we thank you for these dear friends, and these are not names of people that we kind of knew for a few years because they came to church from time to time, but these are people who are deeply a part of our community uh, in many ways. Uh, not only did they embrace the values that we have as a community, but they expanded those values and changed those values. We say, and I think we say this very honestly, that as a, a community that sees itself learning together, interpreting together, uh, worshiping together in many, many ways, that who we are as a community is always changed by the people that come and are a part of who we are. And we have been been certainly impacted greatly by these three friends. And since Vanessa is sitting here right beside me, I want to pray very specially that you will help her connect in friendship, connect in those who will encourage her faith, encourage her very uh, uh, vivid and powerful imagination of the kind of justice that you want uh, in this world as she has participated in Durham Can and many of the things that we do uh, socially and politically in this community as well. And we know there'll be those opportunities for her, but we uh, certainly pray that you will uh, help her find people who can challenge her, places that she can serve, and certainly the kind of life, faith, fun, balance that's necessary in a graduate program that may she be diligent but able to be uh, uh, find many uh, other aspects of life around that program. And we certainly pray that for Dave and Hannah as well as they're stepping back into uh, another degree program and this is a, a third move for them academically that you might uh, in, in every way inspire them as well as encircle them with those that uh, that will love them, will imagine with them, co-conspire, all of those things. May 
your grace, your mercy. And, and tonight, in many places, we're going to pray for your presence as the most significant theological promise of, of the biblical text. And we invoke that promise again with Vanessa and, and Dave and Hannah, that they might sense your presence and the presence uh, of your love through those around them in new places and new destinations. May they go with you in a sense of your love for them as they take these next steps. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as is our custom, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to pass the peace to those folks around you. Maybe greet somebody you don't know. Um, This is also a great chance to get a cup of coffee, which I think is ready now. Um, Grab a snack, and I'll call you back in a few minutes. If you guys want to go ahead and find your way back to your seat, bring snacks with you. Snacks are very much allowed at your seat. I just told Vanessa that the, it was fitting that uh, our text for this week is Lamentations, and that I chose that specifically for her because we're lamenting losing Vanessa and the Kleins. Um, So this week, we are going to look at the first part of Lamentations, um, 1 through 6, um, and that is actually pulled from the lectionary, not from this Sunday, but from another one. Um, So I promise that I'm not just uh, picking and choosing, because in the first, or the last part of chapter 1, it starts to get a little bit more graphic, and so um, I'll pat myself on the back for sparing us that uh, part. But what I want to do is kind of talk about where we've been and then where we're going to kind of go um, tonight and then next week. We're actually going to do um, Lamentations 1 this week, and then next week we're going to um, move to Lamentations 3. So those two kind of hold together. um, So you can be thinking and looking forward to um, the hope that talks about in Lamentations 3. We're not going to get there tonight. Um, So get your sackcloth out right now. Get some ashes. Um, through this series, if you haven't been with us, um, we have been doing uh, some looking at Old Testament uh, books. So we've been looking at Ezekiel, um, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, um, Song of Solomon, Dan took us through last week. And in all of that, we've been holding these texts in tension with some visual art pieces. And um, being the humanities nerd that I am, I, of course, couldn't choose one. I chose like nine. So um, we're going to be looking at a lot of art tonight. Um, You can forgive our kind of shoddy projector. Um, I will do my best to kind of explain each one as we go through. Um, That's a bird with a candle. Um, (laughs) That's not one of our our images. But first, to start off, we're going to have Dan uh, read our text. So reading from Lamentations, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. She lives now among the nations and finds no resting place. 
Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the festivals. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her young girls grieve, and her lot is just bitter. Her foes have become the masters. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From daughter Zion has departed all her majesty. Her princes have become like stags that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So what Dan just read for us there um, is the first part of the first book of Lamentations. And these are actually structured kind of um, more poetically than we can even notice in the English because they are, in the Hebrew, are form kind of an acrostic. They form kind of a um, really beautiful, almost structurally, you know, sound, uh, you know, flow. So there's obviously lots of intention, lots of um, precision in this. So we kind of lose that a little bit in the English. Not that I am familiar with the Hebrew or else I would tell you what it meant. Um, maybe Stu can uh, give us some insight later on. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. We put you on spot the first day. Stu is starting a PhD program at uh, Duke Divinity in Hebrew Bible. So we're going to call him up next week. He's going to do the second part for me. Um, but each of these first five chapters of Lamentations is actually talking about um, the fall of Jerusalem um, at the hands of the Babylonians. And we think that this is, you know, probably 587 um, BCE, around that time, and it is linked to Jeremiah, so it comes after Jeremiah and is um, probably maybe maybe written by Jeremiah, right? There's a lot of things in it that some people say, yes, it's definitely Jeremiah, and a lot of things in it that people say, no, this is not Jeremiah at all. So your guess is probably as good as mine, um, but for our sake tonight, we'll just say that it was written by probably a prophet, um, and certainly somebody who kind of had an eyewitness account, or at least was closely linked to the events that they saw um, as Jerusalem fell, and definitely with the exile that followed. So what I kind of want us to think about Lamentations as is a political funeral song. So as we're reading through it, these images of the land being desolate, the city crying out, all of those things, if we can frame it in that way, um, I think that'll be helpful. So the first question I want to throw at you, if you take a look at the text, who is lamenting in this text? Yeah, sure. The, yeah, definitely. So the city actually is personified as one who has a voice to cry out. Good. Anybody else? Does anybody else see any other source of this grief or lament? So the people of, of the city. Prophets, 
the prophets. Right. So God joining in to this lament. Someone, too, who seemed to have known Israel at better times. I mean, in other words, there's something to lament because they knew what it was or what they thought it was. Right. So it's like somebody who knew you in your, you know, your golden, early golden years, maybe when you were in high school and you were an athlete or at least not post, well, I was going to say at least uh, not post baby or (laughs) post, you know, uh, 40 or something like that. So this is the, uh, this is the early, I'm just saying, claiming it for myself. Friends from, you know, 15 years ago would probably know different things about me, probably know different things about you. So this is Jerusalem in her, uh, her golden years, right? So what we see in this first chapter of Lamentations, and even the title of the book Lamentations, we look at it as almost an exception to the rule of, um, of biblical text, right? It's, it's very name is Lamentations. But as we track through the biblical narrative, we can see that this is actually the rule, right? So if you look at the Psalms, over half of the Psalms are lament Psalms. They aren't um, Psalms of praise. So what we're seeing here is actually really on track with what we see um, in the rest of the Old Testament and even can be found definitely in the works of Paul and in the Gospels. So this is my big question that I wasn't sure if I wanted to ask it now or even ever. Looking at the Old Testament and looking at these words and limitations, why don't we lament? So we want to rush to the end, perhaps, and not not dwell in that darker places. A certain type of end, sure. To whatever the lament is, sure, absolutely. That's good, Sarah. Also, sometimes to make a lament, you have to acknowledge where you're at fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and this text says the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it's hard not only to acknowledge that things aren't always right, but also to acknowledge that we're the cause of a lot that's wrong. Absolutely, so that we're complicit in things that might, that we might then have to lament for, or that even God is an active player in suffering and lament. That's great. Amy, I was thinking about how in order to lament too, you have to have uh, have longer vision than I think sometimes we do. We're quite short-sighted in our experiences, and and even just in our... um, in Christianity, sometimes you forget to sort of situate yourself in, in God's story, which is bigger and has different parts than just the part that we're in right now. So um, in that way, you're just kind of only acknowledging what you're seeing around you when things have not always been that. I think that's one of like the biggest uh, insults in 
you know, some of these biblical books is a prophet that's short-sighted. They talk about that a lot in Proverbs of, you know, seeing only what's in front of you as the worst thing you can do. So I think that's absolutely true. Because suffering is entirely avoidable. If we just got our technique graphs and had enough faith, then we wouldn't have to be like these Old Testament guys. We're better than them, surely. So we've got the magic answer now, so we can just, you know, move forward. Right, so this is in the past, and obviously has nothing to speak to today, right? Elizabeth, go ahead. I think in order to be willing to lament, you have to have, uh, you have to be able to trust the, the people with whom you're sharing that they care. And you also have to trust that they're okay to mourn with you. And I think that's, I think both of those things are difficult. Like to get over the hump of like that this person or people would want to listen to my lament is, um, you know, that, that's hurdle number one. And then to have, to have people around you who care about you and be willing to, like, drag them down into your pit is also, like, hard to believe that they would want to do that. Right. And so I think that um, there's a level of intimacy and trust that we have to have to be able to, to be willing to lament. Absolutely. I think of even just our kind of greetings to one another. If we ask each other how we are, like, you know, there's no way that you want to open that can of worms usually, right? Unless you really know the person and are actually feel like you can trust them with your baggage. Usually it's the, it's the niceties that we share, um, but we don't get into the deeper stuff. Good. That's really good. Anybody else? Why don't we lament? I think... Um when we talked about this a lot in the food group and stuff, but just feeling like you deserve to limit. I have trouble feeling like I deserve to limit. Like I don't deserve pain. Or to admit that I have pain. Right. But pain takes up all of the space. Um, all the things that I've Sorry. Yeah, it's this image that if we acknowledge pain, that pain that's in that space. So that pain can't hold intention with other things. Like that's the only thing we can be doing is being sitting in pain. That's good. Well, what I wanted to do tonight um, was look at some images that were created kind of in and around wartime um, because I think that we're going to start to see some of these things that you guys have brought up, some of these images of trust, of um, a failure of these responses to kind of injustice um, and I think that there's kind of no better place to look than the way that historically people have reacted to war. And so I am going to be depending a lot on your insights to these. This is not Art History 101. This is not, um, you know, give me the critical theory of why somebody left space here. We could do that, you know, and never really get to the really heart of some of these things. So... Um, I want your, your reactions, your kind of gut responses. Um, if you'll just, if you'll help me kind of track through these, that would be really um, insightful. So what I first wanted to do, um, this first image, um, like I said, forgive our poor uh, projection, but this first image is, the title is Wartime Misery Self-Portrait. 
and if you can't see it that well, it's um, a man in the in the center, kind of holding his face, um, and then one hand he's holding a paintbrush. And I chose this image to start because it kind of does exactly what um, I think we go to when we think of lament, or at least I do, um, kind of when I am not thinking about the larger biblical narrative of lament and what that means, I think of lament as this really individualized process. Um, and so even he's talking about wartime misery. And he's sitting alone in a room with a paintbrush. So this reminds me a little, like, um, when Katrina hit or when Fran hit, there's with Fran, there's all this just stress around you and yeah. stuff going on around you, but it didn't affect you personally. And so you're trying to figure out who you are in this space of war, if, if it's not you that's being shot at, and just the, the kind of kind of ethos of, of misery and destruction and pain around you. Right. I mean, to me, I mean, to me I, that's why I just think it looks like he's trying to understand his own place in this. Right, so how, how do we connect um, to kind of injustice or war or despair when it's not directly affecting us? What, like, what, what do we hold on to? I think you're right. I think that this is, like I said, this is my, like, comfort zone lament. This is, like, it's not inaccurate. I think it's maybe just not the full, um, the full picture, of perhaps, what lament could be. But if we start there... I think it's a really good place. If we start to kind of, okay, I'm even going to think about this. I'm even going to put myself in a place where I'm allowing pain to kind of enter in. What would that look like? Okay, our next picture. Um, this is from, I'll have to explain this one a little bit because it's a little bit blurry. Um, this is from a series called The Disasters of War by um, Francisco de Goya. Um, and he made these. He was a, um, a printmaker and, and painter that um, created, I think it was about 80 prints between a, over a decade um, in the early, uh, like 1810 to 1820. And um, he actually didn't, these weren't published till after his death because it was in fear of, um, you know, what would happen if... People saw what he was, um, how he was kind of interpreting war. Um, so he, there's still un, like an uncertainty of if he even um, witnessed some of these things, but this is kind of his internalizations of war. So this particular uh, piece that I chose is called "This Is What You Were Born For," and he, there's basically a pile of dead bodies, um, and the man, the figure, is vomiting onto the bodies. This is his kind of reaction to the death um, here. And so this was kind of took place around the time of um, the Peninsular War um, in the early 19th century. And when I was flipping through these, like, I would like to say that this was the, the worst, but they actually get much worse. <laughs> they get far more graphic. Um, and so what is this... What are your reactions to this as a piece of lament?
interesting how when we think of lament, it's almost always a mental exercise of like putting yourself in place and thinking about these things. And the fact that that guy's getting sick, like that's a physical, like he was physically affected by that. And I wonder how often we experience lament in that way. Um, and I don't know if that was how it was supposed to be interpreted or not, but that's just something that struck me as interesting. Absolutely, so that our bodies are involved in lament, whether we like it or not. I think, um, I think the title is really interesting this one, um, just because it kind of gives you an idea to say this is what you were born for, like the waste of, of human life, that, that, is, that someone who's a soldier who dies in war like that, that their, their sole purpose, their sole accomplishment in life is you know, to kill other people, to die, to die for that, and how sad that is. Right. Commentary. There's a question too of this is what who is born for the observer to observe kind of destruction and death or the people who have perished because of this war who is who is the who? I almost wonder if the who referred to him that this mm-hmm. is what I was born for to document uh-huh. and remember this tragedy. Right, so it's the artist's job. Right, to put themselves in places where they might see that. That's good. Our next um, one also has to do with kind of this bodily response to lament. This is the, this is Dali. So of course you're gonna get like a long, ridiculous name. Um, This is soft construction with boiled beans, premonition of the Civil War. Um, And this actually was done by Dali Uh, before the Spanish Civil War. This is his claim that he did this before the Spanish Civil War um, and that he basically was prophesying that he knew that this was going to happen. But again, I chose this kind of just because of the visceral response um, that I think we can see in it. Um, So what in this particular image reminds you of Lamentations 1? Are there anything, any parallels that you can see? So I don't know if you can kind of tell, there's basically an arm holding onto a leg, which is then stepping down on the arm. So there's kind of this cycle of what I think of as futility, right? So there's like movement can't happen. Um, And then kind of a disembodied head on the top. So the empty space. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't want to go through that. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and Dolly says that, well, critics say that the boiled beans in the title either refers to what the clouds look like or what typically people ate around this time for dinner. And I just thought of, like, you know, what a strange choice, right, to choose something so basic to talk about something so incredibly terrifying and um, just full of despair. 
So I, what I wanted to show in these two images, the, um, the Goya image and the Dali image, is what a lot of you guys have touched on, that lament involves our bodies, for better or for worse. So it involves being close to bodies that are going to die. It involves um, being close to one another as living bodies, using our bodies in lamentful ways. So I know um, a lot of us have talked about, I feel like this has been a season where a lot of us have had to either perform or attend funerals. So think of those spaces in which um, you have to actually be close to a body that is either sick or is dying and how painful that can be. I think that some of these responses that we see in artwork tap into that kind of fear of why do we medicalize funerals? Why, do we, why are we scared of a body that's broken and a body that's dying? And what about lament allows us to kind of, um, even in that pain, draw close to those bodies? So the next um, kind of theme I want to look at um, is what does lament look like in the public square? So this is actually a photo of Guernica, Spain, after it was bombed for over three hours um, in the uh, 1930s. Um, and so this is the inspiration for um, Guernica that Picasso did. And Picasso actually um, was a little subversive, did a little subversive action. He um, was commissioned to do this for the World's Fair, to do a piece, and he uh, did this, which um, I don't think was what they were expecting. I think they were probably expecting some flowers or maybe, maybe some abstract figures, but probably not um, a scene of destruction quite like this. Um, it, there's lots of kind of different theories about what the bull is and the floating heads, but he made it pretty clear that his reaction to um, the bombing of the city and kind of the destruction and injustice um, was what he was going to what he was going to show. He was he was not going to um, beat around the bush. So, what do we see in this piece that is different than the pieces before? How is this response to lament different? It was communal. Communal, right. Amy? Yeah. It seems to me, coming back to one of the comments, I don't know, thinking about it, I haven't seen this before, but thinking about it being part of the World's Fair. Huh. I mean, the World's Fair is an event that really is meant to kind of, it's like the height of, of humanism, right? We're going to have a fair where everybody from every place in the population is going to come and enjoy themselves. Um, and I think this really is kind of a challenge in that way, that maybe it was the attempt to have that fair that created the carnage of the last century, uh, when you're trying to kind of pull, make sure everybody will come into the same room in the way that we, that uh, at least Western civilization has done that. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to think of, maybe it's a challenge, that sense of, I don't know, maybe our transgressions are written on the wall. That's good. So in a place that people are gathered to kind of show off their best and brightest, this is what hangs on the wall for Spain. And I was reading that he, they actually moved this piece around so much. Um, it was supposed to be you know, a traveling exhibit. Um, one, so people could see it, but 
also like the like national you know the officials didn't want people to like get up in arms about it and so if they left it in a place too long people might actually start to protest and people might actually start to get too rowdy so they would move it um less also because people would deface it um so i actually we have a friend who has this on her arm uh, as a tattoo um and so brandy daniels has it on her arm as a tattoo um and i just always i, I sometimes when i'm talking to her i'm just like i can't i can't not i can't look at your face i'm just looking at this your arm it's just it's just beautiful and um dark and harrowing and all of those things okay so what else what how else is this different well, you know, one thing I think that's interesting about an artist doing a representation of the destruction of war is that um, I think with Death and with War, when we're in the middle of it, there's so much to do. In other words, in war, you're trying to survive, you're trying to clean up, you're trying to fight back. I think with Death, a lot of times we're trying to manage it. We're trying to figure out what to do with stuff. We're trying to figure out how to do a burial. And so a lot of times I think we try not to feel in those circumstances. I mean, that's part of being a soldier, right, is... To not feel, to move forward despite your feelings. And in this, we've got the artist kind of going, we sort of forgot to feel. In other words, we sort of forgot to lament. We sort of forgot how harrowing this was because we tried to move on to the World's Fair or whatever. And I think in some ways that's a role that Lamentations has is to say the tears that you couldn't feel, that you wouldn't feel because it, you just couldn't. You were moving, you were trying to deal with stuff. They're still there. And I think we oftentimes feel like if I start crying, I'll never stop. But I think great art reminds us that if we cry, we'll actually stop crying. It's that if we don't start ever to lament, that we won't get past some of the stuff. At least that's how you know I, I read something like that. I think we can turn lament. So like the first thing with the artist is how we want. Even that is kind of romantic. Like you're going to be like in the rain and like oh I'm just so down and I'm this kind of little figure suffering. This is there's like a track about like a horse dying on you and like the people are like literally wailing and clothes are on fire or whatever. There's there's something stoic about some way we can think about you know mourning and kind of you know, kind of cool almost and kind of like agony or whatever. But this is just uh, gross and bad and like um, you know rare, we usually don't suffer in a way that we would. Just literally just wailing. So is this a this picture of Guernica? Do you do we feel that this is a more um, wait? Let me let me rephrase that. As opposed to these these other two pictures that we saw before, um, what does this do that helps us understand lament better, or does it? Absolutely. So that it's, this is kind of taps into that idea of the whole earth crying out, of the land being desolate, 
of animals having, you know, either facing death or having no place to then go, the, or- the earth being scorched, all of those kind of images. That's good. I mean, I thought, too, that this harkens on what Dan said, the idea that I encountered in the studies this year of the carnivalesque, this idea that the, the, the carnivals of Europe were these um, seditious protests, that the government, the governments would try to decide whether to stamp out or allow, and uh, to the point that the word became known as kind of the, the laughter uh, said sarcastically, so it could actually be the lament of the people. And what they did is whether it was grotesque bodies or animals or all of those things were, were in some ways a <coughs> huge protest to the world that they lived in, kind of masked under kind of this image of gathering and fun. They were deeply seditious and they moved around uh, from, and, and in some ways, I, I need to stare at that more, but that was my first reaction. Is, this is something that is just the height of a, of a, of a carnivalesque type of absurdity of, of saying that, and even to say that, uh, and I think that was one of the carnival ideas was that if you were saying that we live in a just land or a fair land or a, 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 a land of peace, it's absolutely absurd. And for two weeks we gather in our community and kind of under our breath and under the eyes of those who impose that on us say, this is hellacious. This is deeply wrong. Uh, and, and that's part of lament is this sense of human spirit of saying, I, I reject this is the way it is. So that was my reaction to that piece. Well, because of the the shapes and the figures, it allows more to be said, right? Art taps into something that perhaps we could, if we used words, we would get thrown in jail for. Um, and perhaps, maybe even with art, we'd get thrown in jail for. So the next image I want us to look at um, is from the Holocaust Museum in D.C. And for those of you who haven't gotten a chance to walk through it, um, this is an exhibit that is made solely up of children's shoes um, who died in the camps. Um, and I actually can't, I can't remember and I can't read the quote on the wall, but um, it's just really overwhelming. When you walk by, you see these tiny little shoes, um, and they fill up almost a whole room. And so I actually just want us to look at this for a couple of minutes. And with that image in your mind, um, take a look at this next one, which is a propaganda poster um, from World War II, specifically um, right after Pearl Harbor. So holding these two images kind of in your mind, we could honestly say that these are both lament, right? But what is different about these two images of lament? So structures of, of power and being able to respond in certain ways. That's good. What else? The 
This one almost has an individual standing above the, that's probably the Arizona blowing up below it. I can't see that quite well, but it's, you know, it's a deeply personal response and it's juxtaposed over this, uh, this tragedy of a raised fist. Okay. One is naming the disruption, and I think the other is sort of trying to incite violence. Mm. So one is kind of perhaps located in the area of memory and memorial and um, and grieving in a certain way. Um, this seems to me angry, perhaps vengeful. Not that those aren't appropriate responses to things like war but just how both of those can hold um, kind of in the same breath the word lament. Most of you weren't around when Pearl Harbor hit, but we were. Uh, and the thing that struck home was not just the destruction of, in Hawaii, but the deception they had a minister making peace with us in Washington right up to the moment of the attack to throw us off. And there was a real feeling of, hey, you can't do this to us. And as President Roosevelt said, this is a day of infamy that will forever live in history. And uh, the news broke at a Sunday evening service that my brother and I were at, and everybody was looking at my brother and the older ones who would surely be engulfed in war, and they were. And we lost a, lot, a number within just the next year or two of our own community. So it was, this is more than just history to us. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I, th I think looking at all of these images, particularly the ones, um, like you said, that are more recent, they, it just, like, we have to remember the stories, the larger stories that are behind all these things, why they were made, what people were thinking when they actually saw them. Um, posters like this. I was, you know, doing some research for this, and there's just so many, right? You could tell that the response um, was, like I said, so visceral. So I feel like I could do this for, I could do this for a long time, right? I, this is one of my favorite things to do, is to kind of look at art and see what art can share with us and what we can, um, what we can learn, what we can um, find, what we can kind of bring to the table, um, through pieces, especially visual art and, and music, um, that sometimes are, the text might not be able to uh, shed light on. So I know that, um, like I said, when I was preparing this this week, there is something about looking at images of destruction and war that uh, makes you feel quite helpless. Um, and perhaps when you look at images, words are hard to come by. Um, but what I want to leave us with tonight is the kind of uh, remembrance that in our scriptural narrative, in our biblical narrative, we have kind of a songbook of lament. We have resources, um, we have stories, we have places to enter in 
um, that the people that have gone before us, the church that has gone before us, um, the ways in which God has moved and um, the ways in which people have responded, we have all of that in our biblical narrative. Um, and we have it in kind of our cultural psyche. We talk about, I talked about at the beginning, you know, why don't we lament? Um, and you guys had all had some really good insights of why we shy away from that. Um, but what I also want us to think about is how is lament actually all around us right now? How is it hidden in plain sight? And what are the ways that we can kind of tap into that, pull the mask off, and stand side by side with folks that are perhaps lamenting already? What are the ways that we can join into that? And so to kind of show us um, how that is present in our kind of cultural psyche already, Wade's going to lead us through a song that you guys might recognize. Um, And I would ask you also if you would take out the image that you got when you came in. Um, This is actually a a woodcutting by uh, Fritz Eichenberg, who is a uh, Christian artist that he he does a lot of um, images of Christ kind of in unexpected places. Um, And this is his, The Christ in the Bread Lines. And so as Wade and Dale lead us through um, this song, I, I would encourage you to kind of Hold this in your hands, look at it, and think about the ways in which um, lament is perhaps all around us um, and what we can see and what we can take from that. Thanks, Amy. The uh, song Natural Blues is one that um, you might remember from the radio if I play it. Um, I don't have the same voice because this song was done by Moby. And what's interesting about it being called Natural Blues is that it was one of the most unnatural songs that was created at the time because it was when computers were really being uh, introduced into music production. And so one of the, what he did with his song was he took old blues recordings of this woman singing these lines and he manipulated them so that he could put a bunch of electronica, uh, dance kind of beats and other sounds with it. Um, and so... Instead of it um, having uh, a natural sound, it's this really dancey kind of beat. And a lot of people heard it in clubs and stuff and didn't realize that it was actually a blues song about death. And so uh, as, as we're singing this, and please feel free to sing along, I think it'll give you a sense of where lament is actually all the way around us uh, in so many places that we look, and sometimes we can't even see it because of the form. Oh, 
didn't stay long Looked on the bed My brother was dead I went in the room Didn't stay long Looked on the bed And my brother was dead Oh Lord He troubled so hard Oh Lord He troubled so hard Don't nobody know My troubles with God Don't So refer to uh, the prayer sheet that came. I hope that you grabbed that on the way in, the prayers of Benjamin Tucker Tanner. Um, and Amy, that was such a good question you asked tonight about what precludes lament in our culture. Because I, I think we all have that need at times. Uh, to, to I, I know this is, when, when I am wounded by something, frustrated by something, or angry by something, I, I know there are days when I'm like, I just need to like have an hour with Mimi in the morning where I can just kind of purge this. And often schedules don't allow, and life doesn't allow, so we, we yearn for this. But I was thinking of a couple of things that are real, uh, things that preclude our ability to lament. And one is the story of human glory. I mean, we, we believe at times in this unleashed sense of progress, that humanity's at it. We're going to get it solved. And if there ever was a more dangerous story, that might be one of the most, that we are in charge of our problems, that we are able to overwhelm that which besieges us in the, in the world. And so to some degree, and again, I was watching this documentary this week, and they were playing against these kind of st- Stories of loss and economic shame, uh, rants of people that were just going on, on the radio, television, people calling in, talking about anyone who could be in this situation surely is not working, isn't trying, isn't caring. Uh, and there was this one particular man who was in his early 60s, a, a Wall Streeter, who had interviewed for hundreds and hundreds of jobs, and they kind of put his story up against the these kind of rants that said, if you are not getting it done, then there's something deeply wrong with you. And of course, that what a subversive story that kind of takes our way, eyes away from the power and the presence and the reality of God who sheds tears with us. Uh, Elizabeth, I also thought uh, about what you said as well, is that there is often not safety and lament. And through the years, I've sat in pastoral staff meetings where where people got angry because somebody got up and prayed and mentioned fear or depression or suicide and you know and somebody said we can't talk about those things here now I'm 
wanting to shove my head through a wall saying, this is the place where we tell those stories. That's a, a, just a fantastic comment. So I wanted us to do a couple prayers tonight. These come from, um, from Bishop Tanner, who is uh, one of the famed African-American scholars and pastors of uh, the turn of the, the 20th century. Um, and he also, um, you can read the bio there. This is, I lifted that from a couple of, of websites, but a couple of amazing kids that were a part of his marriage. One of his, my favorite painters, and I've just started to encounter his, his paintings, is his son, uh, Henry. And there's a photo of the thankful poor. He was one of the first acclaimed black um, painters in America. Their daughter was one of the, we're not sure, but perhaps maybe even the first uh, African-American uh, female physician uh, in our culture. So an amazing family. And, and his, he was a, a writer, a denomination leader, a preacher, uh, a scholar, all of those things. Um, but this poem that we're going to do first is a poem and a prayer called Hidden Grief. And as it says there, he, he literally um, saw a woman um, uh, weeping in the streets and struggling with the fact that it was inappropriate for her in her mind to have those tears and to express those tears. And so the first three stanzas are, are those of a, of, of a poem. And then this is his response. A, a fourth kind of stanza is his prayer of response. So I'm going to read those first three stanzas and let you let that sink in for a little bit. And then if we could, let's read the fourth uh, stanza that begins with God of mercy, known alone as a as a prayer together. So if you'll join me. Oh, the untold secret grief that draws back from all relief will not deign to have a cure, grieves and says, I must endure. Ah, the tear soon wiped away, wipes in haste with no delay, lest some sympathizing eye might the weeping espy. Oh, the, ah, the heart's great heaving groan, quickly silenced, lest the moan might attack some friendly heart and to save at once to start. And if you'll pray with me, read these words together. God, God of, of mercy, mercy known alone, alone, to thee is, this is the saddening groan, to thee is the falling tear. God of mercy, hear, oh near, hear. And in some ways, that's the counter story to the shame of expressing lament is the story of expressing a lament to a God who not only weeps with us, but works redemptively in our pain. And it's the counter story to the narrative of glory that says that humanity, rather than, than some of the subversive art that we've seen today where we're lamenting what we've wrought, uh, we are holding on to the story that we're the solution uh, rather than uh, the cataclysm, so to speak. And lament in its power invites us to engage God. It invites us to see our own mortality and our limits, which in my mind are the precursors uh, of worship. Um, this final prayer was written actually before the one we've just read. It's called Our Plea. And it's perhaps the greatest thing that we can say to God is the reminder that the greatest promise of the scriptures is, is God with us. It's Emmanuel. It's God 
present to us. And as the story unfolds in the New Testament, it's a story of God present to us in every way, in humanity, in our communities, in our destination. And so I thought that as part of an act of absolution, um, we have invited you to to, kind of set aside the barriers to lament. uh, And in being able to embrace lament, we're now able to pray uh, freely and openly for the presence of God, not God as one joining us in our agenda to stamp out a few of the problems that might still exist in our world, but it's the prayer of people with their hands open wide saying, I am, it's kind of the look I have when I'm trying to like, if I were, if I ever were to like try to put up a ceiling fan, I think that would be my look like, oh my God, I cannot do this and I never will be able to do this. Um, and, and, and in some ways, that's our posture for this prayer is our hands are open wide. We're seeing the limits of our own capability, but in our lament, we're inviting God's presence. And it's an honest invitation. It's an invitation that we know is received even before it's, it's spoken. So if you will, I'm going to ask you, if you'd like to, to, to read this prayer with me. And if you will, just explain. Extend your arms as we read this together, and we'll take this posture of uh, we're inviting God's presence in among our own futility. So if you'd like to do that, just extend an arm. I'll hold the mic and extend one arm. Um, And if you will read this prayer with me, I invite you to to pray this. To thee, O Lord, we make our plea that human sorrows thou wouldst see, and human grief and human tears that flow throughout the lifelong years. Awake, O Lord, and speak the word. Awake, assert thyself as Lord, and let the pain of head and heart at thy dear coming, Lord, depart. Awake, and let thy people know that from them thou wilt never go, and let the world be put to shame if, Lord, it reverence not thy name. Amen. Well, tonight's been a real drag. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't do typically well with stuff like this. I mean, I think that, our, uh, that in some sense we're trained to kind of see people who are lamenting with a certain kind of contagion that might actually spill over onto us if we get too close. And, you know, I think in some sense people that are really lamenting find themselves saying, hey, I've got to get over this quickly because if I get stuck here, there's a chance I may fall into a black hole and I'll be lost forever. I think our our society and our culture trains us a lot that way, to not really deal that well with lament. I mean, chances are, I don't know if you had one, we did not have a lament club in my high school. And if we did, I don't think many people would have gone. Maybe a few goths, I don't know. But other than that, it probably would not have done very well. I think sometimes that same mentality transfers into our life in the church. That we forget we're a lamenting people. We forget that God is not scared to enter into those spaces. That when we are struggling, when we are tired, when we are worn out, when things in our lives look devastating, when we are just overwhelmed with a sense of uh, desolation and destruction, 
that God actually makes space for us in that. As we move to the table tonight, not only do we say that, but we actually get to practice that. That here at this table, God does not set this table, God does not give the gifts of this table solely to those people who are happy, who are joyful, and who are excited to be here. God gives these gifts to all of us, to those of you that are struggling, to those of you that are scared about the person next to you who's struggling, that God sets a table here so that God's grace can enter into all of our lives. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come, partake of the good gifts of God, to break bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you, and to pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. To do that, recognizing that here, we find a space that as a community of lament is open to all of us. Even those of us who feel like we might be losing our grip on everything. And to those of us who are not in that position, we find ourselves in a space created by God where we can actually make contact with those lives, where we don't have to be scared to enter into them, where we don't have to try to wrap it up immediately, we don't have to try to solve every problem, but we can share. We can pour, we can eat, we can enjoy company even when it scares us. We're going to return right now in benediction to a song that we sang right at the beginning, Hard Times. It's going to be a weird juxtaposition, because in some sense we're going to sing it as our benediction, as a reminder of a kind of dirge or something that points us, in a sense, toward the space that God creates, both for our enjoying life together, but also an open area where even the deepest laments we find ourselves can be shared and can be still a place of communion with God. Thanks, Dan. As I mentioned, when we did this uh, in part at the beginning, Stephen Foster wrote this just prior to the Civil War. And um, uh, it's interesting, as we're coming to the table, I was thinking of, uh, it's been well documented that there were people who brought picnic baskets out and ate picnic lunch at the first battle of the Civil War, uh, first major battle. And they sat up on a hill and watched people kill each other. And I think this table that we're invited to is not a table where we sit and watch each other uh, get killed, but we actually come together to um, celebrate the fact that in uh, the death that we're celebrating of Christ, we're also celebrating the resurrection and that there is hope as we come and join with people, even in their grief and as we experience our own grief. So hopefully you can sing that, this song uh, that way. Many tears while we also sorrow with the poor. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. While we sing birth and beauty, music, light and gay. 
at the door Though their sad voices are silent They're pleading, let's just say Oh, hard time, come again no more Tis the song, the sigh of the weary Hard times, so hard times, come again no more Many days you have lingered her life away with a worn heart as better days are o'er though her voice would be merry to sing all the day oh our time come again no more this is a song the of the week That is wafted across the troubled wave. Tis a whale that surged upon the shore. Tis a dirge that is murmured around the lowly grave. Oh, our times come again, no Welcome to the table tonight.